Hello, listeners. It's time for another episode of Film is Lit, where Danny and I take a piece of literature and we compare it to its film or movie adaptation. That's right. We're back. Coming in hot. (laughs) Danny and I have very different energy levels. Pretty consistently. (laughs) I am ready to go. It's 2 a.m. No. Drank four Red Bulls. Let's do this. All right, I'm Laura. I'm the film expert. And this episode, we're going to start normalizing pronouns because I think we can do a better job at being allies to non-binary people. Certainly. Laura, she, her. Danny, he, him. I'm the film expert. And this week, we are covering the film and movie... The Girl girl on on the the Train. train. More like the girl is insane for thinking that wig is acceptable. Am I right? One of the worst wigs in film I've ever seen. I'm talking about Rebecca Ferguson. It's it's her wig. She's so great in those Mission Impossible movies. But, I mean, put uh, put a horrible blonde wig where you can literally see the stitches on her. Give her an American accent and not the best. Not the best. Yeah. I'm excited for this episode, what we're well into series two. We've gotten to the swing of things by now. I think we know what we're talking about. Those early episodes, <laughs> I was I was rambling a bit. I said, um, almost every other word. I'm trying to work on that more and get better. Obviously, I'm not perfect. And I think just me saying that right now, now put it in your minds that I say, um, a lot. And I ramble a lot. So that was kind of my bad, but I'm going to leave it in. And yeah, let's get to... Don't admit your mistakes. Oh. Don't apologize for your mistakes. How else am I going to get better? <laughs> well, let's just get right into it. So, Laura, what is your relationship with The Girl on the Train, the book? Well, I remember seeing it all over bookstores when I was living in England. It came right. out in 2015, which is the year that I studied abroad. And it was huge. And, like, I'm talking every single bookshop that I went into. And if you know me, I went into every single bookshop that I came across. So it was always on the shelves, always in the front displays. And when I was living in England, I was trying not to buy too many books because I already had a stack of books and souvenirs that I was bringing home. So I didn't read it when I was there. And I ended up reading it the summer of 2017, I think, because uh, during my college years, I was working for a summer camp and I didn't get to read a lot during my summers. So the first summer I jumped at the chance to read it because I'd heard so many good things about it. And I had, I remember having a conversation with my boss at the time and he had read it and was pretty harsh. And so I read it in like two days because I really wanted to have a conversation about it. And I was feeling really ready to go to bat for it. (laughs) And I think uh, because I wanted to have some interesting ideas to talk about at lunch with my boss, I kind of, I made myself fall in love with it a little more than I probably wanted to or that I really felt like it deserved. I was excited to go and read it again for the podcast and watch the movie because I never had. And I kind of came out wishy-washy and I'm kind of on Rick's side now. (laughs) I understand where he was coming from because, and this is something I kind of want to talk to you about on the episode. I 
really want to explore what makes a thriller stand out. Because I think it's a genre that really gets a lot of crap, in fairness. Mm -hmm. But this one, for me, just doesn't stand out. And it's interesting to read it fairly close to another reading of Gone Girl for me. Because it's very consistently compared to Gone Girl. In fact, I even found a quote, it was on Wikipedia, so take this with a grain of salt, but it said, it's the next Gone Girl. Mm. And I, I just think that's really interesting because Gone Girl is such a standout thriller. And this novel explores a lot of similar themes, like unhealthy marriages, toxic relationships, self-destructive behavior, the importance of intent behind actions. But for me, this book on reread just didn't hold up as much. So yeah, that's just, oh that's boy. kind of my version. This film my wishes journey. it was Gone Girl. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. The yes. comparisons yeah. are undeniable, yes. both in terms of tone and the type of story. They basically, you know, they're both kind of explorations of violence and mystery in genteel right. suburbia. It's yeah. taking these very, these tropes, these expectations people have for relationships and marriages and lives in right. suburbia, and it's kind of a, a juicy exploration of this. And whereas yeah, Gone Girl... Right. As Gone Girl. As Gone Girl kind of deftly dealt with those themes and had some really great writing the girl on the train just doesn't have the tightness of yeah. gone girl it, it's very like calling it discount gone girl it, i think is very apt oh, that's so mean but it's so but accurate it, it is mean but i mean that's like the most accurate so like accurate did you come up with that because that's oh so no accurate. i mean maybe maybe i read it but i mean i try not to look up too many reviews but when this came out of course sure. I, I looked at reviews and like every single reviewer professional critic without fail would mention the connection to gone girl uh -huh. and kind of come say this is why gone girl is better and yeah i mean it's really hard not to right yeah. and whereas gillian flynn was able to make you like and dislike characters and then swap throughout right. throughout the film right. and throughout the book right. as well. The case with the girl on the train is that you kind of just don't like anyone, really. A at least that's my opinion with the movie. I you mean, you can feel sympathy for Rachel. You a feel bit, sympathy, but... but this this story really has three main characters. Really, it's it's uh, you know, um, and then and then four by the end of the story because of Tom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which was and was not a good twist. We'll we'll get to that but right do you want to talk about your journey yeah absolutely so i didn't read the book and i didn't read the book for this podcast either so i'm coming in just having watched the movie um i initially watched it back in 2016 my, i was living with my roommate kyle shout out to kyle we went to college together and he got a screener of the girl on the train through work and we watched it back in our apartment and kyle's the type of critic he's so well read and researched and well spoken that if Does he Kyle listen to this podcast? I, I hope so he after better. this I was but, gonna say we could have him on as a guest but. but yeah we should because what I was gonna say was that when he likes a film he can write like a professional review and convince you of its quality and then conversely if something's terrible he'll just like rip into it and you can kind of like see his points and and really be convinced that way so we watched it together and we it was kind of clear to us halfway through that this 
it wasn't really good. So we started really just ripping into it. And once the movie ended, my opinion of it was very low. Like I thought it was terrible, to be honest. But I was actually surprised by my my rewatch that I don't hate it, but I still don't think it's a good movie. I think uh-huh. it's it drops the ball in a lot of categories. Certain act, certain performances are not great. Certain story devices are not well told. And the thing about this story that makes it inferior to Gone Girl is that it relies on coincidences. Whereas Gone Girl is a mystery that kind of unfolds with characters making mistakes, but then also learning from those mistakes Mm -hmm. and then, you know, making informed decisions and investigations from there. And I just think there are just so many contrivances to this story that it just kind of, on a writing level, I was really... I was really soured by. Well, speaking of a poor way of writing a thriller, not only does this book slash movie rely on a lot of coincidences, I think Paula Hawkins, the author, leans on the timeline jumping around to create obscurity. And to me, that's a really cheap way of confusing the reader. Because if you just stop the story as soon as it starts getting interesting, because you want to take a step back to look at a different character's perspective or a different character's timeline, there's nothing acting on the characters. It's just taking the reader out because the author doesn't want you to continue down the path that you're continuing down Mm -hmm. naturally. And Again, you know what? That can be used really, really well. In fact, in Gone Girl, they take a huge step back in part three or act three, you know, and you finally realize that Amy's been lying to the reader the whole time. But it, this, it just doesn't work as well in this, right. <laughs> in this case because it just feels like that's the only way that you don't get information. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with flashbacks as you're alluding to but the thing about the movie and why it doesn't work in there is that it keeps on flashing back to different characters at from scene to scene and it gets so confusing because it'll be like two months later and then we're with Anna played by Rebecca Ferguson and then the next scene will happen and it'll be present day but you you didn't know the flashback had ended and so you're in another scene and then it'll be like six months ago and then it'll be with Megan and you're like, okay, wait a second here. And it, and the movie keeps on doing that. And it's, it's really tough to know the sequence of events uh, for these characters' lives. And that kind of plays a role later on in the story when, when Rachel wakes up and the whole mystery happens. Once Megan has gone missing, Rachel doesn't know what has happened. So that makes sense for her trying to put the pieces together. But the problem when you have two other co-main characters mm-hmm. who, again, I should mention, who you don't care about because Anna is the other the other woman. Right. And it's like, okay, I mean, I guess she has a child so you can sympathize with her there. But, you know, she also was the one who, who lured Tom away from our, our main Rachel. character, Rachel. And then you have Megan who, I'm sorry to all my Haley Bennett fans, I don't think she's a great actress. Oh, yeah. Don't get... I mean, I've never thought she was a good actress, but in this, it just proves my point. Her direction (laughs) for the whole movie was just say it in whispers, looking at the ceiling, aloof. Like, she has the same expression. Put no emotion into your face or eyes. 
literally looked like a psychopath right the whole time so <laughs> yeah she that was her one trait and you meet her and her first scene is her bailing on the kid who she's nannying giving anna like a day's notice it's like that's her introduction, and she just spends the whole movie not really gaining your affection yeah, she's, at all. She's, to be fair, she's a little bit more sympathetic, the character in the book. Right. Cause, and she quits because it's too much for her to be around a, a baby girl, which, you know, you find out. You find out later. You yeah. find out later. But yeah, that, so that's not the opening scene with Megan in the book. Mm-hmm. But I agree. It makes her into a totally unsympathetic character. So there's really nothing that makes you care about Megan. Of course, obviously, that other than she is murdered. But yeah, I agree. And, and then, but then also the husbands are awful also. <laughs> yeah, well, our boy Justin Thoreau. So we should say we're big fans of him. Oh, don't get us started uh, on Justin Thoreau. Yeah, we. I watched The Leftovers. Laura did not. Leftovers, one of the great TV shows ever produced. It's in my top five. But and we Maniac. Yeah, and he was in Maniac, oh, yeah. which also an incredible show. It didn't get enough attention when it came out sure. two years ago. If um, it came out during COVID, it would have blown up. Oh Hashtag right. Hashtag blown up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag Maniac. But the thing was, we didn't know that Justin Thoreau was going to be in Maniac. He wasn't really advertised being in the show that much, and we stayed away from trailers for the most part. And he completely stole the show. He, he's not the main character of Maniac, but he, he plays this quirky scientist who heads this um, drug trial experiment that uh, the show, the premise is based on. And he is hilarious. He's he, so good. His character is one of the most memorable characters. I mean... Go do yourselves a favor and check out Maniac. But we're huge fans of Justin Thoreau. But the thing about Justin Thoreau is he's great when utilized well. But in this role, he's kind of like a nothing character up until the finale, which, uh, no, full spoilers for the book and the movie. Uh, he, he's the villain. He did it. Right. He, he murdered. He kind of becomes the Amy because you think the whole storyline that he's a great guy even though he cheated on Rachel and left her like clearly he was in the he was the victim of the abusive relationship when Rachel became an alcoholic you're set up to believe all these things about him and then the rug gets pulled out from under you and you realize that he has been gaslighting Rachel for their whole relationship so yeah that so I'll mention that right now that part of the twist I thought was well done. That is something that I did not see coming. I thought it was really clever. And yeah. and that's a really profound topic to cover, right. uh, gaslighting to that degree. I, yeah. I think uh, the point was made when I realized, like, oh, yeah, someone could take advantage of a person like that, you know, who has an addiction, who has a problem, and manipulate them into thinking they, they did sure. something. That yeah. That's something, I'll admit to the movie's credit, is expertly well done. But the twist itself of him being the murderer, I don't think is really well handled because the late, great Roger Ebert said about mysteries is that there's a thing called the economy of characters where with mysteries murder mysteries specifically you need to have a long list of characters because the sh- you know the shorter the list yes. the easier it is to figure out totally. who the murderer is totally. and this isn't to say that murder mysteries need to have like a shit ton of characters but 
I think there's only there's only really three people who it could have been. Right. If and well, at first I thought I didn't think it was a murder. At first I thought uh, Megan. I, I'm gonna get all these <laughs> white ladies' names mixed up, but um, I can't even remember the second husband's name. Right. Megan's husband. I, I have to look remember. at it. It's Scott. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of. You have three options. You have three options, right. and the mystery doesn't really get started. In the thing I should mention about the movie, at least, is that it's not a murder mystery, really, until the second half. And even at that, like she's just missing to begin with. If I was the screenwriter, I would have actually put the murder clo- you know, closer to kind of get mm. things going. Because for a long while, we're kind of just waiting around, going in flashbacks. And by the time we finally learn everything about all the characters, then it starts and there's like yeah. 30 more minutes left in the movie. And by that time, I didn't really, you know, wasn't too invested. For sure, yeah. But yeah, so he's, Justin Thrill's the murderer, like kind of obvious by that right po- well because you have like you were saying you have three options it could have been rachel accidentally when she was drunk it could have been scott who you reminded me is megan's husband who we find out is definitely physically and sexually abusive and psychologically abusive and then our third option is kind of only tom right which like sure maybe he's like the last on your list but if you think about it as you're reading the book as a reader does like trying to figure out the mystery with your main character he does pop up as an obvious choice kind of right so and um, what's great about something like gone girl is that it flips your expectation of what the story is going to be whereas you think you start with it being a murder mystery and then they pull the rug out from under you and say no this is actually a completely different movie this is a movie about a a crazy person manipulating her husband and the media into giving nick uh ben affleck the death penalty and right and i think you know going back to my question about what makes a great thriller i don't know if the answer is always how crazy can i make the twist but a lot of times that does work and with Gone Girl, I we kind of have to keep going back to that as a comparison. But with Gone Girl, it's such a huge play on your expectations. Right. That it also makes you ask yourself, why did I have all those expectations? Mm-hmm. But in this, it literally plays into all of your expectations of an abusive husband or an abusive lover who's yeah. male. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of falls flat. Like, there's nothing surprising about this plot. It's like, okay, sure, Rachel was drunk. And like... You said, I do actually really like that gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really compelling because it plays off of the assumptions that people may have about alcoholics. Right. And so I think that is that is a good twist. But then you find out, oh, yeah, it was just a guy who got angry because his lover was pregnant. And so he killed her. And... To protect his life that he has with his wife like that it, like to me it's like well what is that what don't i know about this story it kind of <laughs> it makes me feel like okay but like i'm not examining any of my mm-hmm. preconceived notions about how people act or about how people should act and then of course rachel kills tom at the end which is cathartic using the corkscrew and anna comes out and sort of finishes the job yeah involves herself in the murder right? when she <laughs> which even that so that to me is such a cliche ending so it's telling you that rachel has overcome her fear of tom it's telling you that anna has 
come to see Tom for what he really is, a monster. And <laughs> the symbolism of Rachel killing Tom with a corkscrew is also very cheesy. It's like, oh, so she's also overcome her alcoholism. Mm. And to me, reading that, it's just like, okay. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. what? I, there's just not a lot of depth there. Right, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> what I, And that goes back to your question which you asked in Gone Girl and now that we're answering now for a very uh, similar story is that what makes a good thriller and I think the thing about Gone Girl which was so great was that it both tapped into our what I call Taco Bell viewings which is like the kind of the cheap fast food like it's it's like not good (laughs) for you but you love it those breakfast crunch wraps let me tell you I would eat if I if I didn't gain weight I would eat those breakfast lunch and dinner a thousand days of my life, every day of my life. I, I want one now. Right. So, uh, yeah, me too. Sorry. But Gone Girl's triumph is that it, you know, completes the contradictory feat of being both trashy but also very complex and you know deftly well made. Like it's it's both those two things, which yeah. again, you know, I can't stress enough. Those are two contradictory type things that's like watching the godfather and then watching like the real housewives of beverly hills like one is like classic cinema and the other is just like pure fluff garbage that we pure watch garbage right also, so we eat our taco Bell. i think that's the cool thing about thrillers like this it, it is juicy and trashy but it also can cover some pretty complex themes and the girl on the train kind of does a little bit of that with the gaslighting aspect of and and a little bit with like you know Rachel's addiction and talking about how especially alcoholism obviously specifically puts you in this cloud and mm-hmm. and you can't remember stuff and you're right. kind of always you're in a perpetual state of cloudiness uh, mm-hmm. because of your addiction but and toxic masculinity right and how that plays out in exactly yeah but director Tate Taylor who directed Girl on the Train? He's no David Fincher, right? No. And and the writer, the screenwriter, is no Gillian Flynn, right? They just they don't do enough to propel it above the trash, right? Yeah. It, it kind of just stays on that trashy level. And as I was saying earlier, there are too many coincidences and plot contrivances. Mm-hmm. And this is something that happened to me. So when I saw Gone Girl in film school, when it came out in 2014, I went through a huge phase of trying to write thrillers. Okay. But I thought it would be this easy thing because I love the genre so much. But what I found out was happening was I was trying to get characters from point A to point B or trying to have them discover something, right? So change from point A to point B. And I wasn't even realizing I was doing this, but I was writing coincidences and contrivances in order to get those characters Mm -hmm. on that path. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after where I went back and and looked at my own writing and was just like, man, this this isn't compelling because that wouldn't Right, those characters wouldn't make those decisions or whatever. Yeah, or this wouldn't, the the stars wouldn't align in this way for them to discover, you know, the culprit wouldn't leave behind some evidence in, you know, a scrapyard, which the detective would find out, like, after he was kicked off the case and he just so (laughs) happened to be passing. But it's like stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the Quinces. Stuff that we've come to love from Bones and whatever. 
white collar and... And, right. Yeah, and the thing that bugs me about the movie is that so there's there's a coincidence where Rachel just so happens to see what's her name Megan uh, kissing the therapist uh, as she's passing. She right. she happens to see that moment, but it's like they're not actually like romantically kissing. Right. It's not like clear, but I mean it's and kissing. Every time, and every time we see Megan come on to the therapist, he's pushing her away. Right. So even that adds an extra layer of coincidence of like the one time that she's kissing him in a friendly way and you can so clearly see in the movie that they're trying to walk the line of mm-hmm. like oh she kisses his cheek but the cheek is like the side lip right and it's like it's like come on like from far away like yeah of course Rachel's gonna see that and think that they're kissing but then like from close up you're like oh it's a friendly kiss, kiss. Like, no. but yeah so yeah. and then the second coincidence which only compounds the first coincidence is right. that Rachel just so happens to be in a state where the next time she sees Megan is the the specific time when Megan is beating up with Tom and Rachel gets off and is able to catch Megan in time after conveniently seeing her again, conveniently seeing her out of the train yeah. and having the train conveniently stop at the right time so, so Megan can catch up with them at the exact time and, and then the conveniences and tr- contrivances keep on happening, so. Well, so I, I would add another one One of the methods that Paula Hawkins uses to throw the reader a little bit off is that all of these women look like each other and all of the men look like each other, right? (laughs) They're all kind of interchangeable. And just making people look alike, making white people look alike as a storyline. Right. Like that even- It's too too many people looking alike. Right, and in the book it's confusing, especially when Scott starts to be really aggressive toward Rachel because then it's like, oh, so he's basically a photocopy of Tom. He just hasn't gone as far as murdering someone yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then it becomes really confusing visually. Right. Because sure, all these people look the same, but it's also like they don't look similar enough to actually confuse you. Right. And I have no idea why they couldn't just dye Rebecca Ferguson's hair. She's right. she's getting paid what? I mean I mean I mean for goodness sakes, this this is a movie. Like right. dye your hair. And, and and I'm not saying that it was Rebecca Ferguson's decision. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure for whatever reason Or maybe she was doing another movie right, and she but, cut her hair or Right. But then for a filmmaker to right. see that wig and to approve it. I mean, it, it, if it sounds like I'm making a big deal of this, like I'm, I'm really no, not. It, this, it distracts scene, me every single time she's on screen. There's a scene when Megan is finally confirmed dead and Rachel's walking away from Scott's house and she passes Rebecca Ferguson's character, Anna, and Anna turns over her shoulder and it almost looks like the wig is gonna fly off. It looks, I, it's so bad. I can't. We're not exaggerating, we can't it's so bad. stress it, enough you know, how you can quite literally see the seams. This is not hyperbole, like truly the worst wig I've ever seen. So yeah, yeah so that's a convenience in it of itself not necessarily a bad one. I mean, that that can work in a thriller where, you know... Maybe one person is mistaken for another one. Yeah. It's like, all, it's like six people. Right, yeah. Like two, like two people get... Like, that actually is compelling. Like an alcoholic in a drunken stupor, like, can, you know, confusing someone for someone else. Like, that's, that's, that's sure, compelling. Yeah. But when it's six people... 
it gets a lot. So then, so Rachel is tracking down Megan. <laughs> and then for a while, she thinks it's Anna. But when we, we get the flashback, we see that Megan tells Tom, who, again, they're meeting to go cheat you know, on their spouses, they're meeting like three feet away from their actual house. Like, why wouldn't they meet meet across town? I, I've never cheated on anyone. I haven't cheated on you. But like, don't meet right next to where your wife lives. So their they're meeting place is conveniently there. Mm -hmm. And then Tom, like an idiot, approaches Rachel. Like, don't, they're far enough away where Rachel doesn't see them. Like, mm -hmm. Tom, at least. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know Tom's there. And then Tom can clearly see that she's drunk so instead of engaging with her, essentially giving evidence away that he's cheating on his wife and you know showing his connection right. to Megan, to Megan, just just walk away, just run away from the situation, or stay in the car, right? Stay in the car. But no, the, that's all he had to do. The choice is made for him to you know implicate himself right. in this relationship by approaching Rachel, and then Tom already knowing that Rachel may or may not have seen him and, you know Rachel was blind drunk but maybe she remembered like he does Tom doesn't, he doesn't know how drunk she yeah, is yeah right? Tom doesn't know how drunk Rachel is and he doesn't know if she will remember seeing him there so Tom having that information decides to murder Megan anyways right that night that night and it's like why would you do that if maybe someone saw you right like if you know i'm not saying you know she was like a full witness reliable witness but why why murder like a someone big risk and they did frame it like it was a crime of passion but he had two chances to stop himself right exactly so it doesn't make sense that he would just snap somewhere super close to suburbia yeah, and she's not dead the first time he kicks her in the face. Right. And then he still killed her. Yeah, I, I completely and, agree. And, I, I mean, that's... you have a good point by saying that they frame it as a crime of passion, where, where maybe he wasn't thinking. But, I'd, like, as I was saying before, they don't do a convincing enough job to frame it that way so, you know, it overshadows the coincidence, right? Right, because the, right, the first time it's a mistake. And, right. And this is different than how it happens in the book. In the book, he outright murders her. Like, he doesn't get another chance to rethink it. But in the movie, she he pushes her, she falls and hits her head. And he thinks like, oh shit, like she's not responding. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll just hide her body. But then she comes to while he's hiding her body. And then he murders her yeah. outright with a rock. Mm -hmm. It's awful. But I feel like that just opened another plot hole in the movie. But yeah, that's kind of the story. But I'm interested in the big changes between the book and and uh, the movie. So l let's get into that. Okay, there aren't we? a lot of changes, but the biggest one that I felt really let down by as soon as the movie opens. Like I said, when I was living in England, this book was so huge because it was an English writer. She's actually she's actually born in Zimbabwe, but she's English, Paula Hawkins, and this was this book was blowing up and I wouldn't say it's pivotal to have it in London. But the reason it's so visual is because it happens on the train that goes outside of London and you pass these track houses. Right. And it just it puts you in that place. Mm -hmm. And it makes more sense to have a commuter in London go outside the city skirts or the city limits. And it actually makes 
it's it's less of a coincidence that Rachel would be seeing right. a bunch of people's homes because with the track houses, they're squished together. Mm-hmm. Everybody's seen those pictures of the brick houses that are close and basically look like a huge building, but it's, you know, separate homes. And so in that way, it does actually make more sense that she would be able to see like three different homes from where she's sitting on the train. So as soon as the movie opened... And I saw that these were like these huge houses in like upstate New York. It just didn't make situational sense. Right. And these people, these couples are like, they're young and these ho- these homes abut this beautiful lake. And to me, it's just like, okay, like how do they afford these places? <laughs> like mm-hmm. that was a huge letdown for me. I just, I really think that the setting was important enough that it didn't make sense for me right. to change it. Right, and and I'm not saying that houses don't rest or abut, as you said, a great sure. word, uh, train tracks. I mean, obviously that's a thing in the suburbs of New York City. Mm-hmm. But as you were saying, it, it's much more common to see that in London, in, 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 yeah. in England. And it kind of felt weird to see it in New York, of being like, that's not usually how like neighborhoods are built. or like It just, it just right. didn't it, seem geographic, you know. Yeah, it's like, for me, having grown up in Los Angeles, like I'm so familiar with the layout of Santa Monica and the Palisades and Malibu and downtown, I can tell in a movie if people are going down the California incline and then suddenly they're going south on PCH. That's physically impossible because you, you know what I mean? You do these little like somersaults in your head and you give movies and TV shows leeway because you're like, okay, like not everyone's from LA and people don't know these things. But in that sense, why would you take something that's set in a specific place so that it makes sense and then put it in New York, but have the train tracks not make sense. Right, yeah. With the way they're passing the houses. Like, and I had a theory for, out. for why the locations were changed that was proven wrong. So when you initially told me that the book was in England, in London, my theory for why the film was in New York was that it was probably shot in in Canada because a lot of people don't know this but a lot of movies that that are supposed to take place in America are actually shot in Canada it's much cheaper to shoot in Canada you get a lot of tax breaks and all it also there's a lot of you know film hubs there so my theory was like this film was probably shot in Toronto because Toronto is used yeah. a lot for American cities it, it you can very easily make Toronto look like any place really mm-hmm. it's very versatile in that sense so I'm like oh it was probably shot in like Toronto or maybe Quebec somewhere or, you know, Vancouver even. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that's probably why it was, you know, converted to New York because, you know, that's what they couldn't feasibly make it look like London. Mm -hmm. But then I was looking it up and no, it was actually shot in New York City and then in Irvington, New York, a suburb and White Plains, also a suburb. So, yeah. It's so funny too that Emily Blunt, who Honestly, her performance sticks out. Oh yeah, she's show. great. She's great. So, but that's the thing. So the main character is English. She has a British accent. We obviously know that the actress is British, but Rebecca Ferguson is also English. She affects an American accent, which honestly it's is not great. Not great. A New <laughs> York, great. like a New York accent, right. which is not. So I just don't understand why they didn't want to set it in London because they didn't want to shoot in England or whatever, but then like why does Emily Blunt have an English accent and it's not really explained or why was that just to like make them different like make Rebecca it, Ferguson It might be a different? stretch but I think she, you know they decided to retain her accent because it makes her even more of an outsider. Yeah. 
you know, that, that was kind of my takeaway. I mean, I think I was so captivated by her performance that, um, that I'm kind of, you know, making excuses for that. But, but yeah, she does feel isolated with the only one having this accent. And yeah, Emily Blunt wore bloodshot contact lenses for many scenes where she's heavily inebriated and she does a really really good job like that scene in the bathroom yeah where she's drawing on the mirror with her lipstick that's really incredible the way that she sucks on her water bottle that's mm-hmm. full of liquor the whole time like that's really believable and when she's like dancing outside she really does stand out i don't know if you want to dive into how poor everyone else is. Yes, I do. Um, right uh, before I do that, though, I-, I wanted to point out the the makeup on Emily Blunt of kind of the running mascara throughout. I think mm-hmm. as much as we don't love the film, I think it should have gotten some awards attention for makeup and hairstyling. Like sometimes with her hair, for like right. Oh, oh. Well, but actually, it, it would have been discounted just from that. Sorry, scene. I didn't even think. Of, yeah, that. So, but maybe makeup should have gotten some recognition because I mean, when everyone thinks about best makeup. Oscars, they always think about like the crazy lavish ones where like the whole face is painted or anything, but no one ever really considers, I feel, like the subtleties of makeup, right? right. Where like, you know, running mascara oh, or, totally. or, or blushed cheeks. Yes, and I want to go back to subtleties of things later. Let's just, I just want Yeah, and so I think really, you know, the work they did on Emily Blunt, I mean, they really transform her and she really does a great job. She yeah. She sticks out like a like a drunken thumb being the best, you know, performance yeah. in this movie. But yeah, let's get to the, the weak performances. I know the first one you're gonna, I can predict what you're gonna say. The first actress you're gonna, or actor, uh, <laughs> well, you're gonna say. Yeah, Allison Janney. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, she popped up on screen and I had no idea she was in this movie. And I was like, no way, Allison Janney's one of my favorite actors. I love her so much. And then the first scene she's in, I was like, okay, I'm sorry. Like this, just coming off of Bad Education, where right. she's incredible Oscar and plays worthy. Oscar worthy performance, plays a very straight character, but a very nuanced character. Right. And in this movie, it's like it's completely beneath her, and you can tell she's really just going through the motions. Right. Of, getting a paycheck and it's (laughs) it's so disappointing but but i mean i get it if you know that you're not gonna be in an incredible movie like i guess i kind of understand just phoning it in it oh it is so phoning (sighs) it in and obviously we weren't we weren't there we haven't had an interview with allison janey but it, it is just so clear. She plays. She's welcome to come on the podcast. Oh yeah, and defend herself. If anyone knows, I love her. I love her acting overall. Right. But... I, and but she plays the most nonchalant. Couldn't give a shit about anything. No. Police detective. It. She doesn't even show like any real interest in solving no. the case that, no. that she's on. Yeah. She goes to interview like. She clearly uh, hates Rachel. Right. She like goes she, after. She goes Rachel. to well. She goes to interview Rachel, and then Rachel is answering her questions. Sure, she's a little manic, but she's not asking for a lawyer or like right. talking back too much. And then Allison Chaney, Detective Riley. She's just like, okay, well, we should leave. And it's like, what? You haven't. Like, she just like doesn't. There's no emotion to her. And like. Like, the thing is, why cast Allison Janney? 
an actress who's known for showing up and supporting bit parts in movies and absolutely killing it. Juno, another yeah. one. Juno, um, bad, like, like... I, Tanya. Right. Won an Oscar for I, Tanya. Right. Why cast an actress who's known for these quirky supporting performances in a nothing role? Like, there is nothing to this detective. She's in right. about four scenes, does absolutely nothing. It, and hey, again, compare this with Gone Girl, but go back to the detective in Gone Girl. What's right. her name? The actress is Kim Dickens. Okay, Kim Dickens' performance as the lead detective in Gone Girl, small part, right. but incredible job. And, right, and you start out liking her because you think Nick is involved right. in the murder, but then when you realize he's not... And then she you becomes single-minded, right. and you're like, oh, I hate you. You start really hating her, but at the end, when she comes to Nick's side, you're like, great character. Yes, and you really, and she starts to fight for Nick, even though the battle is lost. Right. And yeah, compare that with We're, Alice and Janney. She's a two-dimensional character in the book and in the movie. She like, quite, there's just nothing but, to bite into. Right, yeah, there, there's nothing in the book that sets her apart. No, she's no, just, okay. Completely forgettable, as are most of the characters. Right. There's so, just nothing. So now the next character I want to talk about, the therapist, Dr. Kamal yeah. Abdick, played with the, as much charisma as a wet piece of cardboard <laughs> by Edgar Ramirez. Edgar Ramirez, a great actor. I mean, he, he's great, but he also has what? three scenes, the worst scenes of the movie. So bad. He, he delivers his lines with no emotion no, at all, like just like The only thing that's Allison. supposed to make him sexy is that he has a nondescript accent. Right. It's so, it's borderline racist because it's just like the movie and the book are saying this is an important person because he's not white and he has a non-white name and he has a little bit of an accent. It, it's like there's no backstory to him. And if you think we're being harsh, listeners, watch all the scenes he's in, all four of them, and tell me one character trait. I, I, I'm not asking Other to... Other than he's a therapist. And right. He has an accent. Right. I'm talking about a personality. Right. I mean, exactly. yeah. I don't want a list, okay? I want you to tell me one <laughs> character trait. You, you can't because there is nothing there. And whereas Alice and Janney just didn't try, Edgar Ramirez is like actively <laughs> lowering the movie that he's in. I mean, like, it, it's real bad. We already talked about Haley Bennett. Her acting style makes her a little bit unlikable, but also her character. I mean, with the story, and and is this the same in the book where she, you know, accidentally killed her child? Yeah. So, obviously, tragedies happen. I mean, my God, you, you can't blame her for something like that. But at the same time, it's a lot to ask the audience to sympathize with her after that right. event. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a very slippery slope by saying, this is an accident, it was a tragedy, but at the same time, you're like... But she's repeated her mistakes. To your point, she hasn't grown. Right. Instead of using the therapist as someone to help her through this time, she tries to seduce him, even when he says, no, I don't want this. Right. It's like, yeah. yeah, like, what are you supposed to like about her? And she's the one who dies. And I still don't give a shit about right. her character. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, which is so sad. Like, I should care about the victim of a violent crime. And I don't. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, Annie Bennett, not great. Rebecca Ferguson, I've already said this a couple yeah. times. She kicks ass in the Mission Impossible movies. I mean, oh, yeah. my God. What? Oh, number six. Have we mentioned Ilsa. on this podcast yeah. how many times we've seen that movie? Oh, yeah. Fallout. And we have it on Blu-ray. 
Yeah. Oh, Fallout. And I have a T-shirt. And Rogue Nation is great <laughs> too. Oh yeah, but you have a fall. You have a Fallout T-shirt. But yeah, so Rebecca Ferguson, love her, but she was just miscast. Right. Not not great. And then okay, I don't want to lay into Laura Prepon too much. So Laura Prepon plays Kathy, who's the character that Rachel has sort of bunked up with since she divorced Tom. And listeners, Laura Prepon played Donna in that right. Seventy show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was but it she's Donna? also yeah, but she's also. So in right, Orange but is the New but Black. that's where like pe- no, I think Orange is the New Black is like more recent. Oh well, more. Orange is the New Black is more recent, but I would say that '70s show is probably equally on the same bar with like sure. recognizable. But so he- here's the thing: that '70s show, I hate, I hate that show, actively hate it. Come fight me about that show. But personally, I don't know if it's her acting style. And with Orange is the New Black. I've read the book. I haven't seen the show, but she's someone who is a little bit off-putting to me. Like if I hear that she's in a show or a movie, I kind of react negatively. I just, I don't see her inhabiting characters. I see Mm. her acting. And I personally don't appreciate anything she's in just because I (laughs) I just, I just watch her try too hard. And Uh for me that I just, I don't believe any of the characters that she's playing. So that's a personal opinion. And the fact that she played a character in this movie didn't help it being surrounded by a bunch of other characters who are just acting not great yeah I, I haven't seen that 70s show in a while but i didn't have a problem with her in that but yeah another thing she's popped up in i've haven't been too convinced with her let's see who's next <laughs> we're just going down the imdb yeah, just page like... just shitting on everyone uh, <laughs> lisa I mean, kudrow really only... <laughs> <laughs> no, no no lisa kudrow i mean she doesn't really have a big character in this so like i don't really care right she's so yeah, Lisa Kudrow, I mean, she's like, again, she has more of a cameo than anything. But when the twist is happening, when Rachel is coming to understand that she's been gaslit by Tom, again, a good twist. They, 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 we didn't fully address all of the changes. So yeah, you should talk about the change that Lisa Kudrow right. delivers with a really bad line that yeah. doesn't happen in the book. So earlier in the film, we get a flashback of Rachel at Tom's work party and and Lisa Kudrow plays the wife of Tom's boss. Mm-hmm. And then in this flashback that, again, Rachel's not really fully remembering because Tom told her about it. But so in this flashback, quote unquote, she thinks that she got really drunk at the party and then got aggressive and threw Lisa egg Kudrow's dish. egg dish at the wall and made a big scene. And then they they were kicked out of the party. And then Tom was just like, yo, you know, she could fire me. Like, why would you do that? Which Tom claims he was eventually fired because Rachel was drunk at his work party. But that doesn't really make sense. Say if we went to your, your boss's party yeah. and I got totally blitzed and I took the crudite and threw it out the window. Would it make sense for the next day your boss to be less like, Laura, you're fired because your boyfriend threw the vegetables out the window. Of course, it's very embarrassing for everyone involved, right? right? And I com- might apologize. And, and, but... and com- completely inappropriate and you would apologize for me, but why would you get fired? Right. And the dumb thing is that that doesn't happen in the book. Okay. And so the only thing that makes any kind of sense to put that dumb thing in the story (laughs) is that they're trying to escalate the severity of his gaslighting. Mm -hmm. But any person would just be like, what the fuck? That doesn't make, that doesn't make sense. Right. But we haven't even got to the line yet. So then later on in the movie, Rachel 
sees Lisa Kudrow on the train again. And her character's name is Martha. Who gives a hoot? Yeah. But um, she just be unnamed yeah. white lady number a hundred and eight. <laughs> yeah. So she talks to Martha by saying like, "I'm sorry for what I did at your party years ago." And then she says like, "Oh, you didn't do anything." And then Rachel has a flashback again where she understands that, "Oh, actually, Tom gaslit me. All I did was get drunk and fall and fall asleep." And Tom got fired because he kept on, you know, sleeping with everyone in the office and so we had just seen that we had just retained all that information and then to end the scene lisa kudrow's character says twice you did nothing wrong do you get it you didn't do anything wrong and it's like you just you don't need it's like as if we didn't get it it's like it's not beating a dead horse it's showing you the dead horse and then taking the bat from your hand beating the dead horse and saying you didn't do that. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, I was right here. I saw you beat the horse. You know, it's like something like, so it's kind of a crazy thing. I mean, Lisa Kudrow, I mean, we can't really crap on her performance because she's not in it enough to really have anything to comment on except for that line. Um, The only one left, I mean, the only people left that we can totally demolish, totally burn to heck. Do you smell smoke in here? Um, Is Luke Evans, who, so I'm interested about his character in the book because in the movie, they start to, you know, allude to the fact that he's emotionally abusive. And then there's that one scene where he like, he wants to confront Megan about, you know, making a a baby and, Mm -hmm. but Megan's not having it. And like, he kicks a chair, but I don't think the movie handles it well enough where I'm actually not sure at the end of it, if he was, I mean, Sure, he was emotionally abusing her, but we don't know really to the degree. And then we also, like, there's some evidence that maybe he's physically, but we're not sure. My larger point is that he's not flushed out enough to really understand what their relationship is. There's a little bit more development in the book. I I actually took a few visual cues from the movie that make it, to me, it made it clear that he's being sexually abusive because, or maybe this is just Haley Bennett's performance, but she's clearly not really interested in the sex Right. Anymore. And like, there are a lot of times where he approaches her and like, doesn't ask like, or doesn't seduce her and doesn't ask if she wants to, or she's in the middle of things and he just like comes up and kind of pounces on her. But it's really confusing when he's so violent toward Rachel and like throws the bottle. His character isn't developed between him and Megan enough to give you an insight into why his violence toward Rachel makes sense. Right. When he throws the bottle, it's like, well, but throwing a bottle against the wall and like cursing her out and like shoving her, that's over the top, but we didn't get, we don't understand how that played into his relationship with Megan. Right. Like we should probably wrap up because I really, I don't have anything good to say anymore. Right. (laughs) But, But yeah, I just, overall, I said I wanted to come back to the subtleties of the thriller genre and listen, I'm a fan of pulpy thrillers. Mm. I read them, you know, a couple days. I recently read Woman at the Window, you know, they happen, I read them. Mm -hmm. But I really like what you said about how Gone Girl merges the pulp and the literature Mm. so well to come forward with a really compelling message about judgment of other people, toxic relationships, you know, all this good stuff that we've talked about. 
And I had this professor in college who taught, um, I had this professor in college who taught oral interpretation and she, every single class period, she would drive home this message of contrast and why contrast is so important in performance. And I think the way to make contrast work is with subtlety and, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the way that Gone Girl does that is so successful. And the way that this does, the contrast, any kind of contrast that the author wanted to present with the characters, the relationships, all this stuff, I think it just blends together into this mush. Mm -hmm. And so any kind of message that she's trying to get across doesn't work. And again, if we come forward with these bigger themes of how alcoholism can affect relationships, how toxic masculinity can affect relationships, how appearances and, you know, role-playing in relationships can affect people. Is there anything that you learn past the fact that those things are bad? You know what I mean? Or, you know, because, because again, going back to contrast, like, is there any subtlety that teaches us that there's subtlety in those things? Or that maybe some good could come out of Rachel's alcoholism? Like, right? Like, there, there's just nothing that, ha- that holds a deeper meaning in here. Am I just, like, completely talking out of my ass? No, like, no. Is that making sense? Yeah, it's making sense. I think the I'm not, I wouldn't say that it's good, not good out of Rachel's alcoholism, but, you know, more of her coming to terms with it. But did she, like, learn something from it, or... Yeah, with the, I think there's a lot of stuff there, but as we were saying before, it wasn't fully explored. Um, The only real thing that, that again, we've kind of said this a bunch, is that gaslighting angle. And what she kind of learns is she was kind of leaning on people explaining herself to herself. Even when it was was bad things, she was letting other people dictate to her like how she was. And I think a lot of it was, and she would let that happen because she was drunk. But other than just overcoming, you know, to an extent her alcoholism or making the steps to overcome her alcoholism, I think she kind of came to terms with, no, I really need to stop letting other people tell me who I am. And I need to admit my mistakes and take responsibility, but also push back when people try to put me in a box or I guess in a bottle would be a better um, <laughs> metaphor considering, you know, her addiction. But yeah, th- th- that's the big thing. And like, again, it is there, you know, that message. And that's why this movie isn't a total failure for me. But I think from all the other stuff we've mentioned, the poor performances, the really convoluted, contrived story, it's just, it really hinders that message. So we only kind of get, you know, glimpses of that here and there and at the yeah. end. Uh, whereas Gone Girl is like a full-on, like, like all, full-on meal, all departments, all elements are firing, you know, on, you know, all cylinders, A+, plus, you know, in every single department. Mm-hmm. So you can get the full extent of the message. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally agree with what, with what you're saying about, you know, what, like, what we're getting out of it. Yeah, uh, well, I guess we've come to uh, the end how would you rate this is the, the end 
Hold your breath and count to ten. Skyfall. Uh, James Bond. The movie's not good. Like I said, it's not a complete travesty, so it, it doesn't earn the, the meh two stars. It's right under that. It's it's one and a half stars for me. It's It's not a good movie. Not a total failure, but I would not recommend. Yeah. Agreed. As far as the book goes, I would say if you want well, if you've listened to this podcast, you kind of know all of the spoilers. So I don't know if you really need to read this. Uh-huh. I would go ahead and read something like Gone Girl, as we've mentioned, or, or really anything by Stephen King. I mean, can't go wrong with... If you're looking for a thriller, obviously you can't go wrong with a Stephen King book. Yeah, Misery. Yeah. So I would say probably don't read this book. I would give it a one out of four and... With the movie, like I said, if you watch the, if you listen to the podcast, you know all the spoilers. So, watch it if you want to watch some kind of terrible acting. And I would give it one out of four. Doesn't sound like fun, but okay. <laughs> yeah, and the last thing that I thought I would newly introduce to the podcast was if we talk about a topic in a book or a movie that is sad and you might want to do something about it i thought i would highlight an organization that you can support so in this book we talked a lot about domestic abuse so i wanted to highlight this organization called women rising above abuse.org and so check them out you can donate i don't know if they have any volunteer opportunities right now because of covid but check them out then i also wanted to highlight the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's 1-800-799-7233. So if you or a loved one is experiencing domestic abuse, those are two places you can reach out to. Yeah, well said, Lauren. We'll put the organization and the hotline up on our social media as well. Yeah. Yeah, please donate or help out if you can. Well... Yeah, like or subscribe. Yeah. Thanks for listening. What a great episode. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, I hope people don't think we talk too much about how much we hate the movie (laughs) hey that's what they i mean at this point they you know what you got with your podcast if you've been listening from the beginning hopefully we offer the right amount the right balance of pulp and meaningful discussions i don't like pulp in my orange juice do you like that yes oh you and my dad or i don't i don't get it but i hate pulp fiction you hate the movie Pulp Fiction? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know how I feel about that movie. She hates Vertigo. She hates Pulp Fiction. I don't know where to start. We're going to have a talk, Missy. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Like we said, rate or write a review if you want. No pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we would really appreciate it. And yeah, stay tuned for next week where we are reviewing. Oh, this is a big one. Speaking of. It's going to be a two part episode. Yeah, two part episode. Speaking of Stanley King, we're reviewing... Stanley King? St- St- oh, St- Stephen King, excuse me. We are reviewing 11 Oh, boy. Get ready, because this is my favorite book of all time, and this is going to be a two-part episode. Yeah, so, we got lots up. of Start things reading. to say. Hold on Start to your butts. Start reading that book, because it's 1,080 pages, so it might take you a couple days. It's a quick read. Oh, yeah. It you is add a thousand quick pages. read, let me tell you. All right. Have a good one. See you on the next one.